I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, September 28, 2021. Coming up, Boulder naturalists Steve Jones and Scott Sievers look for Boulder County spiders. There's a blade of grass that comes up through the web, mm-hmm. and she's on the other side of that. Oh, there she is, perfect pose. And you can see the stripe on her uh, abdomen. She has a couple of stripes. Oh, there's a grasshopper. It's a little tiny grasshopper that's an inch in front of her. Well, I'm about 15 inches away and just peering down at her. This is the closest relationship I've had with a funnel web spider. We're nearing the month of October, best known for Halloween, and a chance to explore the spooky side of our imaginations. Witches, ghosts, plus some real things such as spiders. Spiders get a bad rap partly because these tiny creatures can sometimes pack a dangerous bite. In Colorado, few can hurt you if they happen to bite, but one spider is dangerous. Its body is a shiny, dark brown or black, decorated by an infamous red-orange dot that sometimes looks like an hourglass. Black widows are not aggressive, according to the Colorado Extension Agency, so bites are very infrequent, even when large numbers of spiders occupy an area. Still, if a female is protecting her web, and someone happens to tease her, or if you reach into a dark area that happens to contain a web, or you're squishing the spider, you can get a bite. It can feel like a pinprick or nothing, or very painful. Modern treatments mean a black widow bite is seldom deadly, but it does need medical attention. As for other truly dangerous spiders, the brown recluse spider is highly venomous, but in Colorado these spiders are extremely rare. Brown hobo spiders and tarantulas can cause headaches or skin irritation in some people. The black widow is the Colorado spider you absolutely should be careful about. But did you know that the red hourglass is not on a black widow spider's back, which is what you see if you're looking down. The black widow's red-orange decoration hides on the bottom, on a black widow spider's belly. So if you see a shiny, dark spider, even if you don't see a red dot, stay back. Now let's join two Boulder naturalists as they go out in the morning looking, on purpose, for spiders. Steve Jones is the author of several books about the American West, including The Last Prairie. Steve's the co-author of Wild Boulder County. Scott Sievers is a wildlife biologist with the city of Longmont. This morning, they're walking among drying wild grasses, looking for spiders, especially spiders that build a funnel-shaped web called a funnel spider. Here's Steve Jones. We're at Sawhill Ponds here in eastern Boulder County, and there are areas of native tallgrass prairie on the south side of Sawhill Ponds. This is actually all prairie cordgrass, which was the grass that was used to make sod houses. It grows quite tall when it's not mowed. All along here, it's early in the morning, so we're going to look for just that shimmer. When the sunlight hits these webs, it's quite beautiful. And when we find a shimmering web, we'll just sneak up really slowly. They're pretty aware of us. They can really sense vibrations. She'll shoot right into that funnel if we approach too fast. So we're going to approach slowly. And I think these webs, I've been photographing them. We put one on the website. I think that they're among the most beautiful things I've seen because of the way they capture the light. As they walk through the tall grasses, Scott Seaver says North America has many species of funnel spiders. Fourteen different species in North America. 
in Colorado we have nine out of the 14 species. Do they eat their webs at night? No, their webs persist and they actually repair them during the daytime. Scott and Steve have not seen any spiders yet, but Steve says other bugs and insects are marvelous here, including butterflies. The other great thing about these tall grass prairies out here at Saw Hill is they seem to support the highest concentration of monarch butterflies that I've seen in Boulder County. I've counted as many as 10 out here on a single morning. And uh, this is a very exciting time of the year. They're just leaving for Michoacan. They started leaving a couple of weeks ago. And all these butterflies are going to fly to central Mexico. I was walking along through the grass here a couple of weeks ago. They found an empty chrysalis, which is oh, always fantastic. really exciting. They're That's like great. Little jewel boxes with yeah. gold bands around them. That's really exciting to find one. The naturalists keep walking in the tall grass prairie. They're both carrying cameras with special lenses so they can photograph spiders up close. So far, they haven't seen any spiders. But if they do, they want to get within a few inches of the spiders with their cameras. And so they're talking about spiders and their bites. You know, the only spider I've been bitten by was a a jumping spider. Most people say their bite isn't, uh, is it mandibles, the correct word, are so small that they can't really break your skin. But I was posing it for a photograph. It was my fault. I was sort of moving it around on the leaf. And finally, (laughs) she just got fed up. She leaped about two inches, and I felt a prick on my finger, and that was about it. It wasn't like a bee sting or anything. I have heard of people, though, who are allergic to spider bites. You don't want to provoke them, but uh, you don't want to fear them. And then also people ask, well, what are spiders good for? And that's such an insulting question. They're so beautiful, and they live such amazing lives. But if you really want a practical reason, of course, they control our insect populations, especially our biting mosquitoes and all sorts of other things that are hard on us. The naturalists observe that spiders seem to be very aware of what's going on. So does this mean these tiny creatures are intelligent? Here's Steve Jones. I don't believe in levels of intelligence. I think that's a false concept invented by humans. And I don't know much about spider behavior in terms of what they can do. I know they're incredibly sensitive to environmental stimuli. If you just touch their web, they know you're there. And they're really observant. And I think they can tell humans from prey very quickly. They have eight eyes in order to see us very easily, and humans are very clumsy. So the spiders have this built-in early warning system to allow them to escape us. They want to avoid us as much as possible, so they recognize us as something to avoid. Then Scott says, Wait, Steve has got something here. Oh, wait, there's a web right up there about 10 feet in front of Steve. This is the one I photographed last week. and It's a flat, flowing web on top of uh, some low grass. The grass is only about 8 inches high. And it's right here. Uh, we're standing about 5 feet away from it. And I'm looking for the funnel. Boy, we're getting too close. We're going to scare this girl. I think the funnel is down here to the right. It's kind of concealed but they don't quite see a spider. Not yet. As they're waiting to see an actual spider, Scott Seavers explains more about the lives of funnel spiders. Funnel web spiders only live one season. The female lays her egg sac at the end of September or early October. 
And she carries it around with her like other spiders or yeah, not? She'll just place it near her web and then she'll succumb to the frost. But her egg sac was nicely cushioned and warmed for the winter. Those egg sacs will hatch in the spring. The fact that these spiders don't live very long might seem sad to some people, especially if they've ever read the most famous book about spiders. The, probably the most popular literature story about spiders is Charlotte's Web. I hope Charlotte's Web is still being read in schools and by kids because it's, it's a really delightful book. While they're waiting to see spiders, they see this. Nudie Bumblebee, this one, Scott, has a little bit of sort of orange, but it's not the reddish color we usually see with our native bumblebees. Our native ones all have this little, on their abdomen, almost all of them, not all of them, but many of them will show these um, orange segments on their abdomen, and that tells you for sure it's a native bumblebee. This one's working on a teasel. Europe. There you can see a little bit of those orange segments on the abdomen as it's working its way around this teasel. And bumblebees are colonial bees like honeybees. They make hives and they have queens and all that. They have a, so, a complex social structure. They're pretty harmless. I was stung by one once and it, it hurt enough. But they're not aggressive at all. They see butterflies. It's a viceroy. are smaller than monarchs. And I've been photographing these viceroys now for about six weeks. It's hanging on a, a cordgrass leaf that's kind of bending down. And this is a pretty fresh one. It probably emerged within a week. Look just like monarchs, except for that black stripe going across their, their hind wing. I think it's just warming its wings and stretching them. They, um, it probably just woke up. They don't have to migrate. They don't lay their eggs on milkweed. We're in a patch of milkweed here. I think milkweed silk is one of the wonders of the world. It's just so soft, silvery. You can see the brown seas attached to these hundreds of silver. I think silver is not, there must be a better word. That color is, it just shimmers. And then they float through the breeze and they can fly hundreds of miles. That's one reason milkweed is all over the world. But these have been used by all sorts of cultures. The, uh, many of the indigenous cultures use them um, the same way we use Kleenex uh, for, you know, babies, to protect young babies. And they also um, use them to make pillows. And there's still a pillow company in Nebraska that still makes pillows out of milkweed silk. I think of this as an ecosystem all to its own. And I've, I've looked at it under the microscope. And there are critters who live in these silks. That would be a, a life's project to study the milkweed silk ecosystem and see all, who all lives there. So there it goes. It's just drifting on the breeze. And that's why the monarch butterflies are here, because there's lots of milkweed here, too. That's where they lay their eggs. But Scott says no spiders yet. And I don't know if they're hiding or have they finished for the year. It's hard to tell for sure. They could be hiding because it's still early enough in the morning. Maybe just not warm enough for them to come out and forage yet. Or maybe not enough insects out and about. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. We're listening in as Boulder naturalists Steve Jones and Scott Sievers 
go out on a crisp fall morning to explore the wild grasses around Sawhill Ponds. They're walking west, looking for funnel spiders. They haven't found any yet. And then Steve turns to walk east, toward the sun. The sun has finally risen above the trees here, and it's illuminating these funnel webs. And I can see seven of them right now within 30 feet of us. They're just like little supernovas here in the grass. You couldn't miss them. They're just shimmering silver. Do you see up to the left, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And let's see if we can find a... Do you see a spider there? See if we can find one or two spiders. Now, they're easier to see when the sun's on them. On the sheets of that funnel spider web, Scott spots a living spider. At this time of the year, it's probably a female funnel spider hunting for food before she lays her eggs. So the naturalists start talking about her. And Steve doesn't see her yet. Is she in the funnel or is she out? Oh, yeah, Steve, I see her. She's about a foot out from the center, from the funnel, toward you. If you took your finger straight forward, you'll point right at her. I still don't see her. I don't know why. I see some prey items here. but um, She's about six inches further away from the prey items. She has a tan head and legs. There's a blade of grass that comes up through the web, mm-hmm. and she's on the other side of that. Oh, there she is, perfect pose. And see the stripe on her uh, abdomen. She has a couple of stripes. Well, there's a grasshopper. So here we've found a funnel web spider. She's out perusing her web for prey, and she's detected a little small grasshopper. And the females are still adding weight to help build their eggs and egg cases. They need all this very rich insect prey to ultimately lay their egg cases with a bunch of eggs inside in the fall. I'm taking a couple of pictures here. Golden is a nice description. The way the sun illuminates her body and her legs, she's really a brown color, but the sun makes her appear golden. And I love the way the legs splay out evenly. You have all eight legs visible around this stationary golden glowing spider who's just intent on trying to capture something. I can see her black eye now, Scott. Nice. I'd say one of her black eyes. Uh, the two on either side of the head are visible pretty big. And I don't know exactly how her other eyes are aligned. The prey is holding really still. It's only about an inch and a half from her from this angle, Steve is at 90 degree angle from her and I'm right over the top. What I'm seeing, Steve, are all these sensory hairs up and down her legs wow. lit up by the sun to help her detect where the motion is in her web. As the funnel spider contemplates the grasshopper on her web, the naturalists seem grateful that she's not afraid. I think we've been here long enough that so she's focused on that prey item and not on us. We don't know if she knows humans from cows. I don't think anyone knows that. I imagine she probably does. But she reaches a conclusion at some point that we're not a threat. Sudden movement is the thing that most insects are most threatened by, any sudden movement. And if you move slowly, eventually, I think they categorize you as not a predator. So how they do that, we can't guess. As they photograph her, there's a growing feeling of kinship. Scott Seavers is the first to say that this doesn't mean they should give her a name. 
I probably wouldn't name it. I'm just not no, that. I, I think she's. I think animals should name themselves. We, all all creatures should be able to name themselves. So, I have friends who name their pets. They say they wait until the pet tells them his or her name, but I'm not sure how. I have a did. relationship long enough with the spider to give her a name. <laughs> I will admit I have named things at home, but often it's just a ridiculous name. Like, oh, hey, you. <laughs> Good morning, you. Oh, it's you again. This is the closest relationship I've had with a funnel web spider. Well, I'm about... 15 inches away and just peering down at her. It's so nice that she's surrounded by shadows, so the sun is just striking her, and then this little tiny grasshopper that's an inch in front of her. But maybe we should leave her for a while? Yeah, she will probably... Now, be slow when we leave, because if we move fast, she... that will frighten her, even if we're walking away. As they're slowly walking away, the spider springs toward the grasshopper. Oh, she got it. She got the grasshopper. Well, she let it go, but now she's going after it again. She kind of waited till we left, and then she went after it. Okay, she's she's biting it, and now she's going to wrap it up in her silk. That was cool. Steve Jones and Scott Seavers take a moment to look through their close-up photos of that lady funnel spider. Then Scott notices a detail. He can see most closely in his photographs. Did that spider have big palps? Yeah, you can see the palps in the photo. I think that might have been a male. Yeah, I think that might have been a male. Yeah, I wondered about the palps. Yeah, um, a palp is a appendage or a secondary. It's almost like a ninth and tenth leg. The palps contain the breeding apparatus for the male spiders. They're sort of these little corkscrew devices that are contained in these two little expanded bulbs on these little forelegs that look like forelegs. And he will have to impregnate the female by going underneath and reaching into specialized um, uh, receptors on the female's undersides. That spider's being a male might explain why it was so unafraid of us. It was so intent on its prey and not intent on defending a, a yeah, web. Yeah, it wouldn't necessarily have an egg sac to defend. Female spiders can be somewhat defensive. If you get near an egg sac, they might shake the web or try to show that you're getting too close. The crisp fall morning is warming up as Boulder naturalists Scott Sievers and Steve Jones continue ambling in Sawhill Pond's tall grasses. They see more species of spiders. Running crab spider. Here it comes. Okay, oh yeah, it is a running crab spider. They don't just wait for prey or they'll run somewhere and wait. Most of the crab spiders that you see on flowers are just, what is it, ambushers. They spot a tiny creature with long wings called a parasitic wasp. Wasps can't keep food in refrigerators. Scott Seaver says they have another strategy. Our great majority of wasps are parasitic on other critters, whether it might be spiders, caterpillars, 
or other soft-bodied insects. They basically, a parasitic wasp paralyzes its prey uh, to keep it alive, and they provision a hole or a mud nest uh, with their prey, and then as the young hatch, they have this live paralyzed food to consume as they develop. It's kind of an anesthetic to keep the prey paralyzed, but keep the food fresh for de- developing wasps. The baby wasps benefit. Steve Jones says so do the plants, so much that the plants call in the wasps. The grasses and the milkweeds have learned to mimic the pheromones that parasitic wasp males use to attract females. When there's an outbreak of caterpillars and they're defoliating these milkweed plants, the milkweeds and the grasses will send out those pheromones and call in the wasps. And the wasps will lay their eggs in the caterpillars, and then that reduces the the uh, herbivory. People kind of think that milkweeds have nice symbiotic relationships with monarch butterflies. Milkweeds hate monarch butterflies because the the butterflies produce caterpillars that eat all their leaves. So we found now that when a monarch caterpillar hatches and takes one bite out of a milkweed leaf, that milkweed immediately gears up and starts releasing those pheromones to attract parasitic wasps. Does this mean that the plants plan ahead, trying not to get eaten? Just as deer run from a wolf, trying not to get eaten. Just as we, as people, try to stay alive. Does the way plants talk with wasps mean plants are sentient? Here's boulder naturalist Steve Jones. Oh, I think sentience is a totally false concept, and it's going to go out with race and other prejudicial words that we've used just to justify all the terrible things we do to the earth. Everything is sentient, and who knows what sentience means. These grasses here are all communicating chemically underground through their tillers and through the fungal networks that attach them, just as we've learned now that trees do that. And I think of these prairie cord grasses as a communication network that stretches all the way from Arizona to uh, Maine and all the way across the country. And we certainly learned with forests that the forests, when they decide they want to produce a bumper seed crop, some of the spruces and firs, they make that decision collectively, and it, that decision extends all the way from Colorado to Siberia. Firs and spruces will all produce bumper cone crops during the same year. And you can't explain that with weather because the weather's different in Siberia than it is in Colorado. So somehow this whole network is, they're all talking to one another all the time. What's the new book about trees that's so wonderful, The Mother Tree? can't recommend it too highly. The mother tree talks about this communication and certain species that have certain mutual interests are communicating underground as well and probably through the air with the chemicals they send out, the volatiles. Steve Jones says that on planet Earth, life eats life. That's the Earth we live on. And there are other planets where maybe beings have learned to take nutrients out of the air. Who knows? But this is so far off the subject, Shelley, but It just struck me, especially with all the doom and gloom we're going through with the smoke and the COVID and the uh, attempt to take over our country by fascist radicals and all these terrible things that we're going through. It feels like the end of days. I suddenly realized that this is really the first time in human history where we've come to the realization that we're not stewards of the earth. Everything we do 
harm something else. All we can do is lessen our impacts in such a way that we don't destroy native ecosystems and native species populations. And I think we just came to that realization about 20 years ago, because I think up to that time, people are still talking about fixing things, improving the environment, stewardship, as if humans were somehow put here to improve all this. As part of this uh, movement of eras through time, humans are just a part of this system as everything else. If any part of it gets out of control, then it just destroys so much of the beauty and diversity. And there certainly aren't any other top predators who <laughs> there are 10 billion of, 8.5 billion, I guess. You know, uh, it's just um, totally out of whack. And that's just because we were very clever and we figured out how to do all this stuff. And now we need to get more clever. Yeah. Here at Boulder Sawhill Ponds, Scott and Steve reach the end of their philosophical conversation, then see another funnel spider web. What a coincidence, huh, Scott? Here's a funnel web spider posing in the sunlight. And here's this little spider's prey. I think it might be the leftovers of a prey. It might just be the exoskeleton of something that had its inside sucked out by this funnel web spider. I think that's it. It's funny, we're talking about diversity and everything, and here suddenly this funnel web starts shimmering in the sunlight. You can join guided explorations of the natural world through organizations such as the Boulder County Nature Association. Scott Sievers and Steve Jones are Boulder naturalists. Today they've been northeast of Boulder at Sawhill Ponds looking for funnel spiders. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Night of the Living Dead and Edvard Grieg's Pierre Gint. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us through Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender.